0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Row Bible Church for more information visit missionrowbiblechurch.com. com. well take your copy of God's word and turn to John chapter 17 the 17th chapter of John it makes me sad to know that there are only only a few more times that we're going to be able to say that we're quickly closing in on the end of this study of John 13 through 17 that we began almost a year ago this month. You'll remember that this is the prayer, the final prayer that Jesus is uttering with his disciples just outside the garden of Gethsemane where he'll go and face his final moments before the Father and where the real rejection of the Son by God the Father where he forsakes him, ultimately manifest by Jesus quoting Psalm 22 the next afternoon. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That will happen moments from what Jesus is praying here in John 17. This is precious and sacred and holy ground. And we come to a very interesting part of Jesus' prayer this morning. This is this is odd by every measure, odd by every standard, and it proves again that the Lord thinks and prays so fundamentally different than you and I do because he prays specifically for the disciples and he commends them. He commends this group of men who have not gotten it, who up and just until a few hours before have been arguing about where they would sit in the coming kingdom while he's explaining to them he's about to die. And in the midst of all that, Jesus finds a reason to commend them. Let's set these verses in our minds together. Follow along as I read verses 6 through 8 of John 17. Jesus praying says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, that they were yours and you gave them to me. They've kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. What do you want to do? When someone says something like this to you, hey, I heard someone talking about you, and they had really complimentary things to say about you, is your next question, hey, what's for dinner? I mean, don't you want to know what did they say? And that's always awkward. I mean, how do you say, well, I want to know what they said, because I, I like being commended. I don't, I've never met anyone who says, oh, maybe Eeyore. I don't like being commended, hate encouragement, might make me feel good about myself, may make me feel good about the Lord or the gospel, I just don't like it. Of course we like to be commended. We like to be complimented. And if you found out someone was saying that about you to someone else, your instant knee-jerk reflex would be, what did they say? Take it to a higher level. What if... You heard someone say something like this at the office. Hey, so-and-so was talking to our boss the other day, and they were saying such gracious and kind and complimentary things to you. You would not only want to know what was said, but you'd be super glad they said that to the person they said them to, wouldn't you? Now take it to the highest level possible. What if God... Jesus Christ in the flesh said something commendable about you to God the Father. Is there an imaginably higher privilege than that scenario? That's exactly what we find Jesus doing about these knuckleheaded disciples who still didn't get it all the way up to the end. This reminds me so much of what Paul does in uh, the first few verses of 1 Corinthians. Remember that um, from halfway through chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians to the end, it is a royal spiritual spanking. And after reading 1 Corinthians and finishing, you've got you to gotta wonder, is there anything going on right at this church? I mean, you have massive immorality, you have people bickering over the leader that they follow, you have a, a wrong use and a prideful use of spiritual gifts, you have um, uh, the abuse of liberty, people uh, taking advantage of, of others' liberality and people taking advantage of, of people who are weaker and influencing them to do other things that were wrong, you have people who are criticizing Paul, and yet he begins 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians by saying, what is an amazing ministry and life you're living. It's a simple principle there, isn't there? To find the things that are good. I know that in my own parenting, it is so easy for me to isolate and identify things that my boys have done wrong while equally ignoring things that are commendable. Jesus didn't fall into such a trap. We see him demonstrating that here in the verses before us. In that, he speaks to God the Father about these men in a complimentary, commendable way. And here's what we know. If he spoke about them in that way, knowing their background, and we have these elements that they were exhibiting of of a commendable nature before the Lord, if we have those in our lives, we can be assured that Jesus, in a wonderful, divine, proud way, says, they're doing what I've asked them to. In John 17, Jesus is praying out loud in front of his disciples. As we've said over and over, this is a unique prayer. No human could ever pray this way to be restored to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. In chapter 3, in chapter, excuse me, in verse 3, he actually prays in third person. This is eternal life that may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. No one prays in third person. I don't pray about, uh, about myself and say, Lord, and Rick Holland. No, that's weird. That's awkward. It wasn't for the Son of God. He's praying so these men would hear and know what he's praying. But he prays both for their ears and the Lord in a way that you and I can't. Isn't it easy when we're praying aloud to so easily think of what we're saying and how that sounds to the people who are hearing us pray out loud Without thinking as much about what we're saying and how it sounds before the throne of grace. Jesus didn't have that kind of tension. He could pray for their ears and the Lord's ear at the same time without sin, without conflict. Here, he begins praying specifically for the 11 men in the room. And this is what's remarkable. Remember the context. Jesus has told them over and over I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be died dead tomorrow afternoon, I'm I'm dying, I'm leaving, I'm going away. And he's prayed in these first five verses about his restoration to divine glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. And from verse 6 on, he no longer prays about himself. If you knew you were hours away from death, wouldn't your prayers concern yourself? Well, they would if we had things to get right before the Lord, things to settle accounts about, things to rejoice in the gospel about. It wasn't the case with our Lord. He was praying about that wistful reunion he was about to have with the Father, and then he spends the rest of the time praying for the 11 men who were in the garden with him and for those who would believe. We'll see in a few weeks, Jesus actually prayed in that prayer for us. For believers alive today. This is a record of epic moment. Jesus is praying. We're listening to inter-Trinitarian conversation. For 26 verses we get to hear the Trinity talk within himself. We're allowed to hear God in flesh pray. It's the longest prayer we have of Jesus And we're allowed to hear and see and peer into the depths of his heart. I'm not sure of everything we know about Jesus that we get so clear an understanding of his thoughts, his feelings, his attitudes as we do in this prayer. The content breaks down into three sections as we've noted. The first five verses, the Lord prays about himself, his mission, his reunion with the Father... And then from verses 6 to 19, he prays for the 11 men, the 11 disciples who are there in the garden with him. And then from verses 20 to 26, he prays for future disciples. That's when he begins praying for you and for me. Now the prayer for the disciples is the main part of this prayer. It's the longest section and it's probably the most instructive for us because we get to see Jesus reflect on a relationship he's had with these men for the last three years, what he saw and what he sees what he wants to commend them for, and what he wants to prepare them for. Remember, in the upper room, he began back in chapter 13 with special instruction, preparing them to live for life with him, without him. He's promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them. He promised to be with him personally. He promised the Father would come. But still he knows the hours ahead would be a shock to all their spiritual sensibilities they were going to watch their master lose. By all human accounts, everything Jesus had ministered for, everything he had taught, everything he had stood for, was about to come to a screeching, defeating halt. He was about to die, and for three days, the world would think that he was a loser. Add to that, for those three days, the disciples who still didn't get it were going to wonder, what have we done? So much so that they go back up to Galilee, close to 100 miles, and what do they do? They're just going to go back and start fishing. I guess that was an interesting three years. They were probably scratching their heads. "What, What was that 36 months of my life? Now what? And so they just go back to fishing it was about to be a shock to them. Jesus knew that, so he prays for them. He prays out loud so that they would hear his heart for them and what they needed the most. He begins his sweet prayer to the Father about them in the most encouraging commendation I can imagine, knowing what the gospel accounts tell us about these men As we consider this commendation, this this compliment set that Jesus gives the Father about his disciples, I think we can hear the echo of what pleases the Lord and how we too can be commended by the resurrected Lord Jesus when we find out what these men did that caught and kept the eye of the Savior. So let's kind of generalize it and, and look at three commendable components of faith, specifically three commendable components of the disciples' faith. What was it about their faith that Jesus picked out and said, this is good? Whatever that is, I want that to be a part of my life. I want to hear desperately, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. How can we get there? We find out in part in these verses. The first commendable component of the disciples' faith is in verse 6 perseverance in Jesus' mission. They stuck with it. Perseverance in Jesus' mission. There's so much. This is such a dense verse and so simple at the same time. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Let's stop right there for a second. I have manifested your name to the men. This is really interesting territory when Jesus is saying, I have shown your name. Well, He's talking to the Father. Here's the question What is the Father's name? Is it Father? Is it Theos? Is it God? What is his name? Would you expect him to say some surname, some first name? What does it mean that, that Jesus has manifested the Father's name? to these men. Well, in that, this is a great point where we have to say what does it mean when Jesus talks about the name of the Father or his name doing things in the name of someone, specifically in the Father and the Son. What does that mean? The word name really is a is a catchphrase for the entirety of their existence, who they are, what they're like. Son of God, do things in my name. The Father, do things in his name. So when Jesus says I manifested your name to the men, whom he gave me, he's not saying, I told you the secret way to spell Yahweh. What he's saying is, I demonstrated to you the name of the father, which is the same thing as saying, I showed you what he's like. Names are scary. Do you realize that every time someone mentions your name in any context, that when someone hears your name, an entire personality instantly pops into their mind? You just got to wonder, what's my reputation? When someone says my name, Rick Holland, to someone else, the, the instant they hear my name or your name, the totality of who you are in reference to your person and reputation and your character and your work, instantly in a nanosecond is communicated. That's a frightening reality, but that's what exactly Jesus is saying here. I manifested your name to say Father now, The men know what I mean. It goes even to a different level than that because he told Philip, if you have seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You want to know what his name really is? What he's really like? I've manifested your name to the men. Here we're back to that divine election, that predestination. To the men whom you gave me out of the world. Divine act of God the Father. We've already covered that territory earlier in the prayer. They were yours and you gave them to me. Boy, there's something. This is is almost too, too much to handle. Jesus says that Christians in general, these men in specific, Christians are a love gift from the Father to the Son. God the Father gives believing ones to the son they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word they were persevering in jesus ministry john 1:12 but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name who he is their faith their belief their mission was all tied up in their understanding of the nature the character the existence and the person of god the father manifest In God the Son. Jesus has faithfully manifested. Phanerao is the Greek word. He's made plain the Father's name to make visible, literally. Jesus made visible the invisible. That's what it means. I love John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, though, He has explained him that word explained is the same word from which we get it's the greek word that we get the english word exegesis studied he has exegeted him he's explained him colossians 1:15 jesus is the image of the invisible god that is a strange thing to say isn't it think of the, the the tension the 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 paradox even in that statement jesus is the image of the invisible god he's the what you can see of what cannot be seen this revelation was to the disciples, something that they didn't anticipate when they were called underneath sycamore trees and walking down the road. Jesus was call, called these men out of the world to be His, to understand who God the Father was, manifest in God the Son, to tell the world about the gospel. To me, the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense of the faith is the martyrdom of these men. Think about these men for a minute. Every one of them, except Judas who's now out of the picture, every one of them died for their faith. If anyone ever knew whether Jesus was a fraud or not, these men did. And they died with their faith intact. This is what's remarkable. You gave me these men. I still think that that these men includes Judas. Still, in the plan of God was the preparation that brought him to the cross. No accident. Of these men, he says they have kept your word. Notice this is singular, where the word "words" is plural in verse eight your words you gave me here it says they've you've they've kept your word this is significant it calls attention to the word when the word is used singularly it typically doesn't mean the closed canon of scripture as much as it means the message of the gospel the point here is that Jesus is affirming that the disciples are a critical link a divinely strategic link in God's work in spreading the gospel to the world they've kept your good news they've kept your word makes sense then in Ephesians 2.20 that we find that having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. What these men would know and teach and canonize and put in scripture would be the foundation on which our very faith would be laid. Ephesians five, in which other generations was not known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets in the spirit. You know, there's, there, there is little I can imagine more encouraging than hearing from Jesus that you've kept his word, I've kept his word, kept the mission. You're faithful to the gospel, that you're faithful to persevere in the truth, to live out the gospel, to faithfully proclaim the good news, to live in the truth that Jesus died for sinners, and to live in light of forgiveness and to offer that to those who will listen. They stuck with him and little did they know how prophetic Jesus was being here because they would stick to him not only to the end, they would stick with him to death. Jesus commended them for being faithful to the end, for persevering in his mission. Secondly, in verse 7, Second thing he commended them for was recognition of Jesus' divinity. This is really precious stuff. Recognition of Jesus' divinity. Verse seven says, "Now they know; they have come to know, rather, that everything you have given me is from, underline this, you." The word "now" is important. These men have seen and heard incredible things over the past three years with Jesus but they've not really gotten it until this moment. They are starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. It's really interesting in divine providence how they don't really get it, they don't really understand, they don't really process Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, truth, until right now they start getting it, writing the, uh, asking the right questions, and then Jesus dies. And for three days they are suspended in what in the worldness? How do we figure this out? Then He would rise from the dead. Then He would have time with them to explain what they were now called to do and He would ascend in the book of Acts and leave their presence a final time. I think there's a sense as well that Jesus is looking ahead to the coming days when they will witness His sufferings and resurrection That's why he says, now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you, Father. There is that connection that I'm not just a prophet, I am your son. The veil is beginning to drop and the curtain is pulling back. Jesus has never been more explicit about his identity than he has in the upper room and walking down the banks of the temple mount. So much so that finally the disciples say what? What? Now he's speaking plainly to us. No more parables. No more illustrations. He's speaking to us straightforwardly. Verse 5 alone would have been mind-bending. And Jesus just blatantly calls himself the Messiah in verse 3. The disciples have moved now from thinking that Jesus is special to knowing that Jesus is God. That... Transformation must take place in the life of anyone who would be truly converted. Jesus isn't just special. He's not just neat. He's not just a good guy. He didn't just say neat things that were written in a book that we can quote. Salvation means we affirm that Jesus is God. Not a God, not a little God, not a manifestation or a phantom, but God in flesh. I love the fact, I love the fact, Aaron, that that you um, included the song, even from Christmas, What Child Is This? That's the question. What child is this? You You cannot divorce Christmas from Easter or Easter from Christmas. Without Easter, Christmas is just a sentimental story about a little kid who... It was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It just sounds like it needs music behind it, doesn't it? That's kind of a cinematic story. But on the other side, Easter without Christmas is a story of just a really sad account of a, of a good guy who got killed. Christmas answers who it was who got killed. It answers that for Easter. Easter answers for Christmas, what child is this? He's the Messiah who would die for sinners who would believe. What they saw in him was far more than a masculine man. It was God the Father. Jesus' identity as God was at the core of their understanding of him. It's at the core of the gospel. Let me say it as clearly as I can. If you deny Jesus as God, it is impossible to be saved. He is not just a good guy and a great Savior. He is God in the flesh. So do you believe that Jesus is God? Not not just a part of God, but what, what he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They recognized finally Jesus' connection to the Father and his true identity. Jesus commended them for that. You Understand who I am. If that's what he commended them for, all the better that our life should be a study in Christology, shouldn't it? There should be nothing more interesting to a believer than Jesus. He should be the object of our our most strained curiosity. What is he like? What did he do? Why did he say that and not that? Why did he say it like this? Why did he confront this guy and be gracious to this guy? What is God like? What would it be if God were a man? It's almost as if for the 39 books and a few thousand years, God said, here's my law, obey. Here's my law, obey. Do this, I'll manifest myself in here and in there. But obey, obey, obey. And it's almost as if by the end of the Old Testament, man puts his fist up and shakes it to heaven and says, if you think this is so easy, come down here and do it yourself. And he did. He did it. Fulfilling the law in every category. Jesus commended them. You know who I am. There's a third commendation that the disciples receive in this prayer reception of Jesus' instruction. This is so practical for you and me. Reception of Jesus' instruction. He says, For the words which you gave me, now we move from the word, which is the gospel, to the words which were all that he spoke. Now, the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Don't miss the fact that Jesus' identity and Jesus' revelation were tied one to the other. They understood I am from you, and you sent me because of what I said. And what I said pointed them to you who pointed back to me. It's a remarkable accent in the Trinity. I, I've told you the story probably 10 times. Let me tell it again. Of having a conversation with one of my sons about, who do you think about, Dad, when you when you think about God in heaven? What a great question. When you think about God in heaven, which member of the Trinity do you think about? Great question. It's not as important a question, though, as which member of the Trinity is put in the accent position in heaven. And you find the same accent in the book of Revelation in heaven as you do in Jesus' life. We found out in John 14 and in John 16, the Holy Spirit's primary role is to point to the Son. When God the Father shows up in the Mount of Transfiguration, Caesarea Philippi, in Matthew chapter 17, he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There's a uh, an interesting article that uh, if I can just be so personable with you for a second. Um, I wrote that book last year, Uneclipsing the Sun, which talks about our importance of making Jesus central in our lives. And this guy wrote a series of scathing, scathing, blistering, uh, articles about my book just ripping it to shreds basically saying this guy doesn't believe in the trinity he's saying that the whole point of the godhead is jesus christ and the more he read the more i agreed with him that what he was accusing me of was exactly right that's why i mean what, what how else do you interpret colossians 118 that jesus that he himself might come to have first place in what in, in everything in all things That doesn't mean we negate the Father, because Jesus shows us the Father. That doesn't mean that we negate the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who opens our mind to the Word of God to understand the Father and the Son. They received Jesus' instruction. The words you gave me indicate what Jesus had taught, what he said. It was the God-given message. Notice the threefold response of the disciples to Jesus' words. First, they received the words. Unlike the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes, they received them as God's words. Second, they understood or they came to know. That was the fact that they saw that Jesus spoke words that were of divine origin. And thirdly, they believed. They believed that Jesus was sent from the Father. These are the starting blocks for understanding anything in the gospel. Receive, understand, believe. Repeat, receive, understand, believe. That's what You want to keep repeating that in your life. I receive the word, I understand the word, I believe the word. The seminal issue here is faith. Increasing our faith that believes things we cannot see. Let I me mean, think about this for a minute. Do you believe, do you really believe that a man was crucified on a cross, three days later rose from the dead, that that man who is God is sitting at the right hand of God the Father praying for you right now. Do you really believe that? If you do, then you have exercised faith. Because There's no way you can prove that. That's why we walk in this world by faith, and one day it will be... What a day that will be. Takes us back to the the issue. Let me just give you a really quick tour. I cannot let this go. John 1, 7. He came, Jesus came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. I have faith. We've already mentioned it. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right become children of God, even to those who believe in his name and who he is and his character and what he did. Chapter 3, verse 16, ever heard this verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever does what? Believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Look down at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's all about faith. It's all about belief. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. We could go on and on. Let's just stop here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Has passed out of death into life. There is that an underlinable verse in your Bible if I've ever seen one. It's belief, hearing the word, believing, understanding it. Do you believe? Will you? Will you believe? The alternative is to believe in that this world is, this is it. This is the beginning and end. This is all there is. Or will you? believe that there is a life after death and a God before whom we will stand and give an account for our lives without any hope of fixing our sin except that Jesus would cover it by his own substitution as our Savior. In that, I just... It's hard not to even smile or laugh. God treats Jesus as if he lived my wicked life And crucifies and kills him so that he could treat me as if I had lived his perfect life and be accepted into heaven. That, my friends, is very good news. You say, prove it. He rose from the dead. That's the proof, that's the authenticating seal of the gospel. He rose from the dead, of which there were over 500 witnesses. Now, when you back up, what's what's amazing to me is to study the disciples over the last few chapters before chapter 13, especially in Mark 10, who are just ridiculously selfish, overwhelmingly short-sighted. Their theology is suspect. It's stepping on each other's heads to get ahead And Jesus, in his final prayer for them, finds the good things to pray about. Is there a parenting lesson there? Is there a discipleship lesson there? Is there a youth ministry or a college ministry lesson there? Is there a children's ministry there? Is there a friendship lesson there? How much could we really criticize each other about? And the answer is a lot, a whole lot. In fact, the more you get to know each other, the more you'll have to criticize. And no one knew these men like the Lord. And when it came time to pray, he commended them. He commended them. Such a lesson about prayer and encouragement there. You cannot bad attitude someone into a good attitude. It's just impossible. Jesus didn't try to bad attitude them into a good attitude. Yeah, he did. In front of them, he spoke favorably about them to God the Father. And you've got to wonder, months, years, decades after this, they're probably processing this over in his mind. As John is recording this, who knew his own life, had to scratch his head and say, unbelievable grace that Jesus would find commendable points of interest in my life. Why can he do that? Why does he see that? Because God sees the full spectrum. And he understood that these men were going to be not only missionaries, not only spokesmen, not only apostles, they're Christians just like you and just like me, and for which God sees commendable dimensions of our faith. Listen, if he can find, Paul can find commendable things to say about the Corinthians, there are commendable things we can say about and to one another in prayer and in mutual stimulation and encouragement, right? Let's make sure that even before we leave today, we, we do a little bit of this commendation, Though so we exercise some of that body life that I think is intended by implication from here where we are imitating God the Father hearing by listening to God the Son and God the Son by speaking commendable things about one another. And again, in the middle of all this, remember Jesus is about to die and he's praying unselfishly for others. How much of our prayers involves the spiritual well-being of the people we know and love? May that increase all the more, as the day does draw near. Father, we have been confronted and humbled by the example of your son, who in his most trying hour demonstrated unbelievable selflessness divine selflessness, dependent selflessness, and also had a perspective of seeing commendable objects of the disciples' faith. Give us eyes to see those kind of realities in one another. Give us hearts that pray for and about those realities in the people that we love. Convict us to pray with others so that they too can hear what we're saying to you about them. I do beg, Father, that if we have people in our building today who this is foreign language to, who really don't understand what it means to be a Christian, to come to this church, use the people around them, use an interaction in a prayer room, a conversation at lunch. Use your word to demonstrate that your love flows and pours out on those who will believe that you've died for their sins and in their place. We're thankful for the good news that is ours because of Christ and contained in your word In the pace at which we can just dive deep into the realities of your saving grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. dot com.